out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Steve Lake, member of Zans, the uh, English anarcho-punk band, all the way from Reading. So this is the interview. After several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early, very early, formative years. Anyway, Steve, tell us more. Tell us everything. I was a child growing up in the 1960s, you know, so, um, and, and in those days, I mean, we just would have the radio on all the time. And I really just kind of liked all the records that, everybody else liked you know the Beatles the Stones the Kinks the Small Faces the Who you know lots of Tamla Motown stuff I started listening to when I was in my early teens um uh so there was kind of there was kind of all that and then as as I got older and you know the the thing about the sort of that that pop music of the sixties, it kind of led me into a bit of a interest and curiosity in, uh, you know, a, a wider sort of pop cultural landscape, and then a kind of like alternative kind of um, musical thing. So, uh, in my later teens, I started to get into a lot of. Uh, a lot of American West Coast psychedelic music, yes, and German what became known as Krautrock. Although I understand some people aren't happy with that particular term, but um, so yeah. yeah, so so I kind of moved from listening to all that sort of pop stuff that you'd hear on the radio into listening to into a lot of kind of you know, much sort of stranger music. Um, and I was kind of... And really, when we started Zounds, that was the kind of thing, you know, that was that was a big influence on us, particularly Can. And again, I know everybody says that, but it's one of those things that at the time... Yes. You know, apart from my five friends, I didn't know anybody that ever heard them. And if they did hear them... They didn't really seem to take very kindly to it. But, um... I know. Well, it, well, it's kind of interesting because because you're right. Because because now you know when I've asked about people's influences, they they always mention you know Captain Beefheart and the Velvet Underground. They never mention Gary Glitter once, and yet you think, yeah. <laughs> and and you always wonder if they've just kind of want to make themselves look a bit more interesting yeah, by, by yeah. quoting the most obscure bands, which is fair enough. I mean, yeah, I used to but, do the same. I mean, the thing is, I never really saw any kind of. Um... Um, you know, I mean, typically I did, you know, really love the Velvet Underground and Captain Beaver and Can, but also I was, you know, I, I really liked things like, um, T-Rex and Slade and those early Roxy music singles and, and whatever. Um, so, you know, I, I, I've kind of always had a really sort of, um, wide musical taste actually and you know I'm a working class person that grew up in Reading and one of the things the other things we listen to a lot 
at home, especially when we got a record player, was my family were all buying country and western records, you know. Oh, excellent. So Johnny Cash, Hank Williams, Hank Lachlan, um, you know, all, all these people, uh, all, all these things were kind of, you know, in the background all the time. Um, well, it's quite interesting because my parents had... I suppose they were very working class from the countryside, and my dad had got into Elvis and that. Yeah. Was, but then he had, you know, was at that age where, not age, but that stage where when you got married, you literally had to sell everything to get a, a slight mortgage, you know, to buy a yeah. house. So, so she, he sort of had obviously didn't have those original records like K Star and uh, Teresa Brewer, Elvis. But then when he started getting a few records again later, he got country, but it was the sort of country that made me feel quite, even to this day, like Jim Reeves and Boxcar Willie. So, um, yeah, it was, yeah, it wasn't even the. It, I couldn't even, you know, like the band, the ones you mentioned. You know, I think, oh yes, I I, I can listen to them now and think they they've got amazing, yeah, yeah merit. Yeah. But um, Jim Reeves still still difficult to cope with. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that was quite a big record in our house, the countryside of Jim Reeves. Yes, I know. <laughs> but um, it was one of those. Yeah, I always kind of went for the sort of, um, you know, slightly rawer stuff because, you know, country music became really slushy and sentimental. But it was always the things like sort of like Johnny Cash or Hank Williams because those, you know, those people were kind of more raw, I suppose, a bit like the kind of blues singers and stuff. So, um, <coughs> yeah, so so grew, grew, growing up, you know, I, I, I just listened to all sorts of music and really liked, you know, quite a lot of it. Yeah. Um, and did you, and going to the 60s, were you, were you also aware of that kind of the, the counterculture? You know, you had in 67, you had the Summer of Love and you had the 14-hour... Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I was very, I, I was very young, I suppose. So in, you know, 1967, I was probably, I think I was sort of 10 turning 11. But it was really apparent to me that something quite strange was going on. The other thing was that I was brought up by my grandparents. So, you know, that's like two generations away. And obviously they found the whole thing, you know, people growing their hair long and wearing sort of paisley shirts and flared trousers. They found it absolutely kind of, you know, outrageous and ridiculous. But um, I was really attracted to it straight away. And so I kind of I kind of gravitated towards that underground scene quite a lot, really. And um you know, somehow drifted into it. So that kind of by the time I left school, I was a fully qualified junior hippie. <laughs> and, um, you know, which wasn't that easy because there was only about three of us in our school and the rest were all sort of skinheads and suedeheads and smoothies and um, yes. getting involved in sort of football violence and what have you. Uh, and, and um you know, as they kind of went more in that direction, I kind of, you know, got more freaked out, really. And, of course, you know, 
started growing my hair long as soon as I was able to and smoking dope and going round to free festivals and um so were you were you aware of the you know this is the post Woodstock period in in the early yeah 70s? yeah yeah I mean I was it was in the early 70s I mean I left school in 73 so so were you aware of the things like the Albion fair and the Barsham fairs the East Anglia? yeah I mean that it was very frustrating for me actually because I was aware of a lot of those things without actually being able to get involved very much because my grandparents were really you know as i say you know they came from a they were they were two generations away and they they were quite restrictive in the way that they kind of looked after you for for a whole lot of complicated reasons but um you know they were very protective of me so it was very difficult for me to get involved really but once i left school and left home um i got really yeah I got really involved in sort of the free festival movement so we were going to Windsor Festival, Watchfield Festival, going to Stonehenge every year um, and and I got totally immersed in that whole scene really um, and you know and and it was through it was really through that sort of free festival scene that Zound started playing because as I said that we were into sort of quite a you know, a freaked out sort of um, improvisational thing at that time. So we was we started to turn up at places like Stonehenge, you know, and hustle, hustle things there, and and that eventually led to us doing. And um, we were connected with, you know, we we end we were friends with a band called Here and Now. Oh yes, yeah. Who was sort of like a junior gong, and they were putting on free, they, they, kind of at free festivals. They often kind of were the catalyst for making sure that there was like a a PA or a bit of a stage or something there. So, and we were we were quite good friends with them. They were living in in um, in, in West London around the kind of Latimer Road, Freston Road squats, and uh, so we started. To, playing at free festivals with them and doing some free gigs with them. And it was through here and now that we met up with the astronauts and the mob. Um, and we started putting on our own free tours at that time, you know, but, you know, of course, punk rock had started to happen. And that, that's the other thing. This is like a really short period of time that in my mind seemed to go on for about 10, 10 years, you know, but yeah. um uh, you know, we were still really immersed in the free festival scene in 75 and 76. But, you know, in the end of 76, I, I guess, you know, the Sex Pistols record first came out and we kind of got very much, very much into into that as well. You know, we saw parallels between what the what what we were doing and the kind of punk rock scene, really. And I, I think actually some of those parallels existed more in our mind than in reality. Um, yeah. Well, because like, I know when Lemmy talks, because he was in uh, Hawkwind at the time, I mean, it was, yeah. it was a little bit strange because obviously Hawkwind had been so influential to the punk scene, but then they came over probably like old men with long hair and probably, you know, put in the hippie category, whereas actually... They they weren't really at all hippie at all, you know, like much. No, no. Well, they were kind of from that. They they were kind of from that 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 sort of like side of of the um, 
of, of the kind of like hippie thing that was uh, that was kind of a lot more a lot more radical in a way. So Hawkwind and the Pink Fairies, you know, were doing a lot of benefits. They were doing a lot of free gigs, playing under the West Way, uh, supporting, you know, kind of the, the 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 underground magazines and stuff. And so they were very much part of you know that alternative you know alternative culture that kind that that existed at that time and and i always thought that was very punk rock you know i mean in retrospect a lot of the stuff spouted by um malcolm mclaren essentially was a lot of kind of pr bullshit to sell his band but i mean there there's an interesting thing i i i heard um do you know billy childish yes yeah, um, I was really, really obsessed with Billy Childish for a while, a, a few years ago. But um, he said, you know, uh, Malcolm McLaren sort of like came out and said, um, you know, this is all about working class people, you know, making art and doing it for themselves. And actually, you know, it was all bullshit. But the thing is, loads of us out in the country took it seriously and acted on it. So, um, you know, and I think that's I think that's very much the case. Um, so, so yeah, yeah. I always found Hawkwind and 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 Pink Fairies and that scene sort of like quite inspiring, really. Although, you know, I I can't say I would listen to their music very much, but you know, I really like their attitude and what they were doing. Um, you know, and I I guess we became sort of. I mean, I suppose I became quite sort of politicised, really, but, you know, in that sort of vague, airy, fairy, utopian way that, you know... Yes. Well, we, can... we, you know, we all do, don't we? Yeah, thing. exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm still, I'm still thinking that, although the evidence is firmly stacking up against me at the moment, but I'm still, you know, I'm still looking for a utopian revolution, really. Yes, well, I, with it, it often started with sort of buying something like the, is it John Seymour's self-sufficiency <coughs> book? You know, there was there were certain books that everyone bought. And yeah. It, and there was the self-sufficiency one, there was a Crank's cookbook, there was the something. Yeah, that's the, right, the whole Earth catalogue. The tis, uh, Is it Tassajara bread book or something? We all yes, wanted to make bread. Yeah, yeah, and, um, yeah, so, yeah. Um, and they sat on the shelves and never got read. But yeah. we, we liked the idea of them. So did yeah. it take a while for you to get your sound together? Because obviously it's not the easiest. I mean, being a creative artist, I'm, you know, I've never had that experience. But actually making a sound that more than, you know, friends, family and anybody else you could emotionally blackmail to see you live is quite something. So, you know, you must have been amazed and pleased when you thought, listen to it back, thinking we've done something. But I just wonder how long it took for you to create a sound. I mean, these things often sort of like come about by by accident, really. And and um, I mean, what happened with Zounds is we were doing this sort of like, you know, free gig tours with um, with the astronauts and the mob and a couple of other bands. And uh, there'd been a, they'd, they'd, and, and be, there were some changes in lineup and then eventually and we had two guitar players i was i was playing bass and eventually um you know one of the guitar players left there was one of those kind of points where you know what do they 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 always characterize as musical differences but basically 
you know, the uh, there were other people in the band that were really keen on sort of like the experimental sort of approach and sort of like free form and improvisation. And I have to say, I was really into that. I'm really into it, but I just felt there was something about the times and what we were doing that I just wanted to do something that was a lot more, uh, a, a lot more direct. And, um, and I kind of, took over writing most of the songs and I was writing, you know, on the whole kind of shorter, you know, shorter songs that were, you know, lyrically quite, they weren't, you know, the the, the, the lyrical content was still the same, but it, it was, um, you know, the lyrics became a lot more direct. Um, and, and and the whole thing, I think direct is, is, is the better word. We just started playing short songs, you know, and a lot of our songs, you know, are quite sort of conventional pop songs in that they like have verses and choruses and middle eights and stuff. Um, uh, and, and, the, uh, and, and as a three piece, suddenly everything was a lot more sparse as well. Um, and, uh, Joseph came in on drums and and the sound really just sort of like evolved from the three of us and it was yeah I mean it was very exciting really because you start you know you start thinking yeah this is kind of getting towards what you know what I want it to be although I'm sure a lot of artists tell you looking back you just think yeah I really wish it was better you know it's it's very hard to capture what what you know what's in your head really and and you know I well I always remember I think it was a drummer from Joy Division who when they listened to you know the record back were all really disappointed thinking no oh, that's not what we wanted to sound like at all but you know Martin Hannett you know had got this yeah well I mean it, it, it's it, it's the it, you know the first record we made for for crass records we'd got to know crass and we were doing these free tours you know it's this it's an oft told story but it's a sort of like slightly weird thing where we we um we were on tour and everywhere we were going there was like you know posters for crass and the poison girls and then we were at a gig and somebody asked us if we knew them and they said we think you'd really get on well with them and they gave us their address and we weren't going to go but then i'll we were all in a bus and on tour and the bus broke down near where they lived so a few of us went to see them and um uh, uh you know and they helped us fix the bus and um we got on really well with them and they asked us to do a record for for their label and then we, we so so we did it and they produced it and they're very very crass were very um particular about how everything sounded and how everything was presented and we really wanted to have a much kind of bigger sound than we had you know and at the time crass were really against that idea of like you know big macho sounding guitars because they you know thought it was um uh well they thought it was just that they thought it was macho and they they uh they really didn't kind of go for that so the sound of the record we thought was really sort of empty and thin and it was a huge disappointment in a lot of ways um although over the years i i've come to see what other people like about it i think yes and um 
you know, I mean, it's weird, particularly the, the, there's the, the track on it, Can't Cheat Karma, which is still a very popular song when we play live. Um, I read this thing in one of Julian Cope's books recently where he said, like, the middle eight is... The, he said it was the greatest punk uh, uh, post-punk record made and it's got the best middle eight in it of all time. Well, one of the old guitar players had wrote that middle eight and as soon as he left the band, we dropped it because we hated it. And when we played it live, we never played this sort of instrumental section. And I'm reading in this book by Julian Cope that it's the greatest, you know, greatest middle eight of all time. And I'm thinking, I don't, I can't see it myself. <laughs> but, you know, so... Um, the artistic struggle. But then as we, we trucked into the 80s and things started to change, obviously we had 79, the great election with Margaret Thatcher. Oh, uh, yeah. But, but then you managed to get signed to the the quite famous, especially in the 80s, and, and especially with, um, you know, indie pop rock. Yeah, Buff yeah. trade records. So you must have been feeling like, this is it. We, we, yeah, we yeah. To... I mean, you know, it was... It was um... You know, because we were, you know, because we we felt of ourselves very much outside of the mainstream music biz, and 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 um, you know, the idea of signing to somebody like Rough Trade was, you know, so much more of a buzz and so much more appealing than signing to EMI. You know, because although it was just like a small corner of the you know, of the world of music. It was the corner that we in, wanted to inhabit. And it was um and it was and it was a bit weird really because we'd done the record with Crass and Crass decided they were gonna have this policy of like we spoke to them about doing an album or something and then things were changing inside Crass and they said we don't want to just be like a record label. We're happy to put records out by bands, but we're not like there too you know, uh, launch people's careers and manage careers. So, you know, you did the record, that was great, but we're not going to do any more. And we didn't really know what to do because we were really, you know, it was really important to me to make an album, you know, and I'm talking about important to me artistically. Yes. Um, and so we went down to Rough Trade and spoke to, and Jeff Travis was there, and, you know, somebody, uh, uh, Jeff Travis was just sort of like hanging about by the door, we said, oh, hi, uh, Jeff, we're Zounds, and we want to, you know, we, we're interested in making another record, and he, I don't know, I thought he'd mistaken us for somebody else, because he said, oh, guys, really, really pleased to meet you. I'm so sorry I haven't come to see you yet. Absolutely love the record. Would you like to record for Rough Trade? <laughs> and I was thinking, he must think we're someone else. And so he said, yeah, that would, yeah, yeah, no, of course we would. He said, oh, that's fantastic. Come and sit down in the office cause, and we'll arrange to do... Um, you know, you should do an album and do uh, do another single. So um, come in the office and we'll look at some dates. And I was thinking, if I died and gone to heaven, you know, uh, and um, and and that's kind of and that's how that happened. And I was absolutely kind of 
you know, I was absolutely knocked out by it, really. And, um, you know, and for us, it was a very, you know, it was a, a very happy relationship, really. And, and we carried on recording. We did a few things for them. Um, and then after that, the you know, after a while, the band split up and I more or less didn't really do any you know, I stopped really being, I was a full-time musician up to that point, but not full-time in that I was earning a living because all the bands in those days were on the dole, you know. Yes. And the dole was like the arts council. It was, um, it was. Because it was kind of interesting because I know this isn't the most exciting thing, but, but I sort of realised most bands have a five-year narrative. You know, they get together 12 months of playing something, you know. And if it's kind of unusual, John Peel would, you know, was the great... Yeah, Was the yeah. great gatekeeper. He would give it the spin, they would get a session, then that first album would happen. The honeymoon period was just overflowing with, you know... Yeah, Pete yeah. Carver and um, sort of TVP meals. And then the second album, a bit tricky, you know. And, yeah, um, and yeah. So, so you obviously had the honeymoon with Jeff in rough, with Rough Trade in 81. Yeah, and then, and then uh, you know through personal circumstances really i kind of i got interested in doing some in doing some other things and and um you know the the, the gigs became a bit of a became a bit of a chore really and um you know although we loved playing we'd kind of got into this weird position where you know, although we were we were associated with this kind of like punk rock thing, you know, we were never really, uh, you know, this particularly this kind of DIY anarcho punk thing. We were we would never really fit totally comfortably in into that. You know, our horizons were always kind of slightly wider although you know and and particularly musically and 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 the records kind of developed you know and we started to add keyboards and things and made some you know what i now think are, are pretty good records mm -hmm. but i think the situation mm -hmm. the situation that was developing at gigs was that uh we did really well playing in germany belgium holland but in britain it became really I don't know, really dour and really difficult. And we'd do some gigs and you'd get a load of sort of like skinheads and National Front people turning up and causing trouble. And then like a lot of people that I think would, have, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the punks that were coming were thinking, you know, this isn't really hardcore enough for us. And then a lot of other people wouldn't come and see us because of the association with Crash. They just assumed we were a hardcore band. And it all got, you know, it all got a bit sort of kind of dour and grim. And uh, that, and then in sort of 82, um, I had a daughter and I just thought I can't really be living on the dole, you know, in a squat with, you know, loads of fucking, I mean, there were some great people, but there were also some real drongos around, you know, and there's like some heavy drug scenes going on and, I just thought I can't really, I, I, you know, hardly can be responsible for myself, let alone bring up, you know, uh, a young girl. So I, I, I left the band at that point and started to do something completely different. Um, I still played all the time, you know. I still played in little local bands, 
uh, you know, around the area I was living in, sort of Islington, Hackney, Haringey. So I, I, I always played, but it was just like on that like local band. Yes. Level. Did you feel? Um, did you feel that you'd sort of become some? You know, I don't know. I suppose fans do like, especially when you're young, to sort of elevate somebody. So you, the Joe Strummer, Johnny Rotten, you know, Susie and the Banshees. Did you feel that you too were becoming this kind of the spokesperson for a generation of disaffected, you know? Well, well no, I didn't really. And, and I think what, um, you know, I, I, re I, I think it was kind of all a bit more personal than that, in that. Um, I, you know, it it was really about the kind of life we were living, rather than the the than the music and 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 what we represented. And I mean, you know, the weird thing I've I've spoken to other people about this. You know, bands like the Mob and and whatever. And actually, far more people come to see us now than ever came at the time. Um, you know, we, uh, as I said, you know, we play to loads of people in in Europe, but in England, it, it, it all becomes sort of like quite drab, really. And I, I mean, I remember doing gigs with people like the birthday party, you know, and there was like 50 people there or something, you know, on a wet, rainy night in North London. Um, and, and, and I just didn't, I, I it, it, you know, making the records were great, but the gigs were starting to really depress me. Um, uh, so, you know, that was that was really why I kind of decided to distance myself because I I left the band and you know we were involved, we were living in the in squats in in Hackney and and the whole scene had become really intense. You know, we lived there, the mob lived there, the astronauts were all at us around. Hagar the womb, you know, people that ended up in Blythe Power, um, and uh, um, there was an outfit there, ninety six tapes, who, which was run by Rob Chalice. So, uh, so you know, it was kind of quite a big scene in this street where we lived in Brougham Road, and 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 it just all became really kind of intense. And, yes. And, mm -hmm. I, I, and so it wasn't just like the band I left, but I wanted to kind of leave that whole scene behind. But them. but it's it's interesting that it was eighty two because because casting one's mind back. That was when there was the you know there was we'd had the Falkland you know the Falkland yeah yeah and then we and then there was the miners' strike and then at that time you know there was a lot of unemployment and people on the job seekers allowance or ben, um, enterprise allowance. That's what we all loved yeah. and, and and either people were into the SWP, Socialist Workers yeah, Party, yeah, yeah, and well. and um, Eaton TVP, and, and just being very angsty. We were very, and there was a lot of kind of angsty poets making angsty poetry. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And there was, and there was the whole sort of CND thing going on as well, and the Cold War. And I mean, I, I, it was really, you know, they were very grim times. I mean, we had, a, you know, we had a lot of fun, but you did feel that it could all kind of, cave in at any moment I, I i think you know and the whole sort of like green and common thing started happening and oh, yeah. um <laughs> so <clears throat> so when uh, you when you split the band or when you walked away from it in a slightly ziggy yeah. stardust moment did it feel like a huge relief when you just kind of woke up the next day and thought 
Thank God that's over with. Yeah, yeah, it did. But then, of course, there are other days where you wake up thinking, oh, God, I might never do another gig again, you know. And um, so, uh, you know, I was always kind of, you know, glad to be out of it. But then, you know, I'd miss it as well. Um, which and, I think so, I... and so and so, just on that personal level, which is quite exciting, I mean, did you manage to sort of get yourself out of squatland and into a, you know... You yeah, were... yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 first, the first thing that happened was I got involved in this kind of workers' co-op and it was supposed to be, um, you know, the idea of it was to uh, provide kind of access to media materials, like video was just coming in at that time. First sort of like Apple computers, the Apple II had come out. Um, and so we really wanted to start this kind of um, media co-op where, which would give access to working class people to like, you know, video cameras and recording equipment and this, that and the other. And, and we started we started doing that and, and it, it was going quite well for a while. But then, you know, it uh, with a lot of things like that, it, it's hard to really make it pay. Yes, um, and we ended and we ended up doing a lot of um, sort of commercial video. Work. I mean, not high scale commercial video work, but we ended up, you know, doing videos for people like uh, the GLC and Hackney and Islington and Camden Councils and voluntary organisations and stuff. And it got to this thing where we were kind of like having to do these jobs to make money to survive, which. Yes. Is was never the point of it, really. The original idea was to provide some sort of like access for, you know, people to tell their own stories, do their own music, etc. Yeah. And in the end, I just, I, in the end, I wasn't really going where I wanted to go, so I ended up leaving that as well. And I, I went and did a cultural studies degree uh, at East, out at East London at the Polytechnic, which is now East London University. Um, so I, I got into that and I, and, and I was quite sort of fired up by all that. And I, I, I ended up for years working in education, you know, initially sort of media education. And then uh, ultimately I was working with, um, uh, uh, kids with special needs and young adults, you know, 16 to 19 year olds doing, uh, who had, uh, you know, whole varieties of sort of like, um, mental health issues, special educational needs, um, learning difficulties, physical mobility things. And, and I ended up doing that for years and years and years. Yes. And did you, I mean, just, just pretty, I, I don't know, how did your relationship with your grandparents, do you, you know, go at this stage if they were still with you? Yeah, well, um, I think they were, they were pleased when I stopped being a kind of bohemian, squatting, punk, rocking hippie and kind of had kids and, you know, and uh, got a job. So that was, um, yeah, yeah, they were, I think for a while they thought I was, you know, living in outer space and they're probably not wrong. Um, <laughs> so, so, yeah, so that was all, yeah, that was, that was. So that was all kind of um, 
yell those sort of like, you know, because the, 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 the difficulties people have as a teenager with their parents, I always felt were doubled because my grandparents were, you know, that much older. And I, I'd never really had much contact with, 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 with my with my mother or father my mother had you know when I was five kind of basically abandoned me and gone to live in America and she was you know crazy um uh you know, and, and so I never really had a lot of contact with or with them um which you know I was quite happy about because um I got very badly treated when I was a young child yes. uh, uh, by my mother because my mother had sort of mental health issues and um, anyway eventually she fucked off to America which how come I ended up with my uh, ended up with my grandparents but yeah I mean all those kind of relationships sort of got resolved really um, uh, and 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 uh, you know I quite I, I, I quite I quite dug what I was doing I mean I I, I sort of I enjoyed the thing of like going to, uh, well, it was a polytechnic and doing some education because I, you know, I'd left school at 16 because I'd just had enough of school and education and stuff. But, um, uh, I, you know, I'd always continued to educate myself, uh, as I went through life. Um, you know, uh, I mean, when I left school, I, I just started reading and reading and reading, and I hardly ever read anything when I was at school. Um, yes, and uh, then and then sort of fast forward to um, what well, it's about two thousand and one. You released a remix the band song this this land. Yeah, that's right. We redid that. It was basically there was a friend of ours. Um, Dave Morris that we'd known from our early days on the, you know, on the sort of squatting scene in Hackney and whatever. And he'd, he'd, he got sued by uh, McDonald's in the McLibel. Do you know about them? Yes. It's, it's there yeah. in the back of my mind. Yeah. Dave well, Morris and it's Helen's... the biggest civil, it's the most expensive civil case that's ever taken place in the entire world. Basically, Dave Morris was this guy, and he was connected to a group called Greenpeace London. They were nothing to do with Greenpeace, but they, you know, um, they 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 basically used to put out picket McDonald's and put out these leaflets called "What's Wrong with McDonald's," and it had a whole load of stuff about how they destroyed the rainforests, treated their workers badly, and their food was bad for your health. McDonald's decided to sue them. And um, and they brought over a team of 40 lawyers from, you know, top New York lawyers from the USA to fight this case against uh, Dave Morris and another woman called um, Helen. And we did a couple of gigs at that time and, and did a new version of This Land just to kind of try and raise money to help their, um, you know, to help with their defence fund. So... So that's why we we did that. Um, I mean, it was basically because he was an old friend, and we felt that he was, you know, <clears throat> uh, being victimised by this, you know, one of the largest corporations in the world. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and I was quite pleased with that with that new version of this land. Actually, you know, it tried to make it sort of a bit more expansive than the original version, and. Um, yeah. Uh, so when when you decided to um, it was so it was two thousand and seven to to reform the band kind of 
as a yeah i think it was i think it was i think it was earlier than that. it was kind of i i re i also i got the band going again i think it must have been 2003 2004 because um i just really there was a a lot of people were contacting me wanting to know if I was still playing and if Zounds would still do gigs. And I got really incensed. I think that was the time of the uh, first Iraq war or maybe the second Iraq war. Yeah. Anyway, there was some bloody war going on as there always is. And I, and I just, um, I don't know, I just became really incensed by the whole political situation. And I felt a lot closer to you know, to the Zounds material than I um, than I'd felt for a long time, you know, because it had really just faded into the background. It was something that had happened in my life. The pe- I was living in a completely different world where nobody knew about Zounds or you know uh, uh, people I was hanging around with or people that I worked with. Nobody knew anything about. Uh, Zounds and that I'd I'd been in this band and then um and it was just like it just been something that had happened in my life it had been great and then it stopped and um and that was that <clears throat> but more and more people started to get in touch with me about doing some gigs so I did I did I I formed um none of the others were really interested in 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 being in uh Zounds again and so I got a couple of other people and we did some gigs over the next couple of years, I think yeah. 2003 to 2005. Then that all fell apart for one reason or another. And in 2007, I think it was, I got asked to do the, <clears throat> Steve Ignorant did a show at um, the Shepherd's Bush Palais or whatever it's called. And, um, and he asked if, I could get a band together and be one of the support bands because he was doing the whole of the Crass album, Feeding of the 5,000. So I got together with a couple of people I was just playing with locally who were great musicians and I got them really well. And they said, yeah, they want to do this gig. So we learned up material and then, you know, we did that and then somebody immediately asked us to do another gig and it kind of has just gone like that. So between then and now i've never really ever you know i've never gone out looking for gigs or trying to book a tour or whatever people generally you know people generally come to us and if we can afford to get there you know we'll um we'll we'll go and play Uh, this year we've been doing we've we've done a lot of stuff this year you have been out there doing it and also i mean you've got a the album a new album redemption of sounds so did you did it feel like um, well, you having new members of a band means that you don't have any history with anybody, and you can kind of start afresh? Did it feel like you were on a on an on on Tinder, basically, weren't you? On yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it was quite interesting. I'd ri- I would I'd been sort of inspired to write a lot of songs that I felt really because we'd been playing with sounds. I, my mind was in that frame of. You know, my mind was in that kind of space. So um, I I started to write songs that I felt were kind of sort of suitable for, for sounds. Because it's interesting about a band is that 
after a while, the people that like the band have as much influence on what the band is like as the people in the group, you know, because there comes certain sets of expectations, certain sets of sort of responses to particular types of things. So, and I think this is true, this is true of, you know, of all bands, um, you know, I don't know, unless you're the Beatles or David Bowie or something and you'll do like an acoustic ballad and then you'll do like an electronic thing and then you'll do a, you know. But I think most bands start to get defined, you know, uh, you know, at least in part by the by their audience. So I had these songs that I felt were kind of really suitable for Zounds. Um, and, and it was a bit different because I, you know, most, I played guitar sometimes in Zounds, and mostly I'd, I'd played the bass actually, but in the, in, in the newer lineup, we, you know, with this new lineup, I was playing guitar and had a really great, great um, uh, pair of people on, on, on drums and bass. And then, I mean, they still play with me now. And, um, uh, so so that was all quite different and I and I, and I uh, and I really enjoyed it and I really enjoyed playing the guitar and stuff so yeah and I was really I was I was really kind of pleased with the way the album came out um you know I mean these things are always uh, are, are always difficult um and I'm not always the biggest fan of old bands doing new records I have to say um but I, th I think I think sometimes it works, and uh, uh, you know it's interesting. I was I was listening to this interview the other day with with Robert Smith of The Cure, and they were asking him about you know playing new songs and playing old songs, and he was saying he was saying he'd written. He said I've written loads of songs that I think are really good. Some of them maybe even better than the you know, the older songs we did. But the thing is, they just don't have the same cultural resonance as the older material. And and I think that's true. I think music has such a different kind of place in the world now to how it, how it was before. That, you know, no matter how good material is, it's very difficult for it to have that same kind of meaning and cultural resonance. Yeah. Because music was so important to, you know, it was so important to me and all the people I know and to loads of people I don't know. I mean, it was really like, you know, it was obsessive, you know, it's almost like a mental illness in a way. But we, we felt it was really culturally important, even if it wasn't particularly political, it just seemed like it was in somehow vital. Whereas today it seems often music comes out and it seems... I mean, there is so much music everywhere, you know, which in many ways is great, but it's, it, you know, it all gets jumbled up and it's used all the time. I mean, I just get really mad when I like see some advert and it's using, I don't know, like that Dunlop advert that used Venus in furs or, you know, you see in a, a car advert and it's got the fall on it or something. And I just fucking hate all that yes it's bad so look just just last few questions i mean there's the um yes because obviously there's always the admin that gets a lot of people in music, the music world did you manage to keep hold of the publishing and the ownership of your uh yeah, well there's a tale um 
Yeah, not 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 really. I mean, we we all the publishing for those Zound songs went to was was done by Rough Trade, who were uh, you know. Jeff Travis is an absolutely fantastic guy. I I really have 100% respect him. But there was also something called Rough Trade Publishing, which wasn't run by Jeff, but it was run by some sort of quite nice people. Um, I think when Rough Trade all went wrong, those people sold the catalogue and it got sold on two or three times. And most of it now is owned by Cherry Red. Now, Cherry Red has gone around the world buying up small publishing companies that are being sold or have gone bust for some reason. A lot of these publishing catalogues on their own don't make a lot of money. But if you own loads and loads of them, which Cherry Red do... Um, the, the Cherry Red are owned by a company called Kastner in the USA. Um, I'm sure there's very good people working for Cherry Red. I'm not maligning them, but you know they they've got a particular sort of business interest, and they've ended up with the publishing on a lot of the stuff. So um, yes, it's very and you know you often wonder if you're getting what you should be getting. Um, uh, but you know, I'm not really. I, I I never went into music business to make any money, and I never have really made any money, and I don't give a fuck really. Yeah. Um, so I d I don't concern myself with that too too much. But you know, it's weird. Sometimes people like get in touch and give me money to use samples on records. Tricky has used some samples of mine and stuff. So um, and what would you and what would you say? To a, your younger self, starting out in the in the creative world of music or any creative world, I just want to, you know, that 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 kind of thing that you've learned, that sort of lesson in life. You think, God, I wish I'd, you know, now that I've got to this stage, uh, there is something. There's some bullet points that I've learned. What would I tell? Myself? Yeah, um, you know, uh, I I I I think you know. I would just, I think I would just say, yeah, do it all again. <laughs> because, you know, there's nothing better than, it, for me, than being involved in a creative pursuit, messing around with loser bands, you know, um, you know, all that time we like, we went on tour and we, loads of stupid things happened and we met loads of great people and, you know, got fucked up and, but, you know, it was, it was really great. And actually I wouldn't really change any of it. You know, I wouldn't say, oh, you should be and been more like, you know, more canny in terms of the business and kept hold of the publishing and exploited this, exploited that, you know, that sort of stuff makes it, um, isn't why I was doing it really. I was kind of doing it because I love making music. I love playing music with people. I love the feeling that you get at a gig. I love records and the idea of being able to try and make a good record, you know, and we got the opportunity to do all that. So I would just say, do it all again and make the same mistakes. Cause yes. uh, you know, that's, that's all really. <laughs> Indeed, 
Wise words. That was me in conversation with Steve Lake from Sounds with a Z. Uh, this has been the C86 Show. David Easter. if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. All these have been archive interviews. Um, you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Yes, you can. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.